Live. Welcome to yet another episode of Professor and the Idiot. We're up in the 40s, 41, 42. Amazing. I'm Nick Wolfinger. I'm Amy Newberg. I'm the idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Always eliciting a giggle. (laughs) Uh, That was a giggle. Sorry, was that a not manly way to describe your laugh? A, 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 a chortle? A, a guffaw, perhaps? Oh, Maybe. thank you. That's much better. Okay. Uh, today, we're very pleased to be introducing as a guest, Matthew Burbank. Matt's been a professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Utah for over 25 years. He's the author of two books and numerous articles and chapters. He's also a fixture on Utah TV during the election season. And we wanted to have him here today to talk about that election we just had and or still having. I might as well start uh, with just the first question I asked Amy when we were discussing having you on today, which is, what the fuck? (laughs) That's vague. Can you narrow it down a little bit? (laughs) Um. I have faith in American democracy. I never in my lifetime thought that a political party and candidate would be operating in such bad faith as the GOP seems to be doing now. Uh, I think people like Tim Snyder at Yale, who's constantly writing op-eds saying, this is a coup, this is a coup, or overstating the case just because what the GOP doing seems so half-assed, so pro forma. Uh, Jim Baker ran the GOP team for the 2004 to recount. Rudy Giuliani is running at this time with having pressures at a parking lot. The Trump team is introducing six-page legal filings all over the country that are getting laughed out. Um, what's the goal? What it's, do you think, Matt? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's... It's a, this is a very weird development in American politics. Um, again, followed by you know the 2016 result, which I think was just unbelievable to most people because virtually everybody was watching the polls before that and thought Trump didn't have a chance, and then he pulled out this incredibly narrow win based upon having gotten turnout in a couple of states um, that really mattered and. You know, became president, and and of course, then we had four years of of Trump. Um, and the odd thing I think is, uh, you know, that again, here's a guy who early on, right, dedicated himself to reelection. I mean, he he literally announced his reelection within the first week of taking the office. So that's fairly extraordinary. Most most politicians wait and get their get their administration going before they do that. Yeah. So, I mean, it was clearly his goal all along was re-election. Um, and the odd thing is, again, that he, what, you know, the strategy he's chosen here, which again, he used in 2016 um, and ultimately said, well, I won, so everything was fine, is this odd strategy, as you noted, of kind of denigrating democracy, of saying, if I don't win, somehow that's because the election is rigged. Yeah. as if it's impossible for him to lose in a fair election. Do you think um, he believes that? I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, <laughs> this seems to be a, a function of 
again, this incredible narcissism of his so that, you know, again, he can hardly conceive of himself not being the center of everybody's attention. But along with that, I think, is this kind of obviously very fragile ego um, that seems to constantly need a, a way to say, well, if anything bad happens, right, it's somebody else's fault. Um, it's, you know, some disgruntled employee or, you know, in this case, the election was rigged. Again, we've just really never seen a president in the United States be so dismissive of voters or voting or the democratic process that I can think of. And he gets so much positive feedback from these people who passionately follow him. I mean, yes. that's, that's as weird to me. Well, it is, it, it is very odd because, again, you, I would think, watching this, that if some presidential candidate were to say, oh, if I don't win, it's because the election was rigged, what you would expect is that there would be a very strong reaction to that. And people would say, no, that's, that's not the way this works. Um, and, it, you know, again, for the most part, that's what Democrats have been saying. But Democrats are, of course, largely talking just to themselves, and they all tend to agree with this point. Um, the very odd thing about this is how many Republican politicians who clearly don't believe this, don't, that is, don't believe that the election was rigged, and yet are really unwilling to step forward and say, no, that's not what's going on here, right? We really need to address this issue, and we need to recognize that the election results are, in fact, the election results. Do you think they're scared of him personally, or do you think they're more worried about their constituents who are Trump followers, you know, losing those constituents? Isn't that the same thing, though? No, I mean, he's known to be litigious and, and always, like, punishing people if they, if they don't follow him around, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's a real oddity to me, again, because um, I understand when he's president that he has powers that, you know, allow him, for example, to appoint people to positions or, uh, you know, and again, in the case of elected officials, right, make their life miserable by attacking them. Um, and so I can understand why elected officials don't really want to take him on in that case. But again, this is something which I would think that most Republicans would recognize this is far more fundamental and you don't really want to be the political party that endorses the guy who said, oh, all the elections are rigged. It's all, you know, a, a, a game. And if we don't win somehow, something terrible has happened here. You know, that really seems like a, an odd thing for politicians and political parties to put themselves in the position of endorsing that. I would respond, at least in my wearing my Democratic partisan hat, is noting that the Republican Party has been anti-democratic for a long time uh, by voter suppression, by constantly uh, enacting photo ID laws, by uh, making it harder for people to vote. Isn't that a history of being anti-democratic? Well, yes and no. I mean, certainly there is that element. Um, and I think it's undeniable, right, that indeed there, there are exactly circumstances in which 
Um, Republican politicians have seen it to be to their advantage to eliminate people from the electorate, to discourage people from voting. Um, and, you know, the, some of the things that you've just mentioned are, are exactly evidence of that. Um, so I know I don't think it's completely off the point. On the other hand, it's one thing to try to sort of differentially affect the electorate. Um, I mean, every political party to a certain extent does this, right? So political parties always want their voters to turn out and not the other side. Right? That's that's their ideal election, right. you know, right? So, um, and again, what, what's different with Republicans in some way is their kind of willingness to use laws that are clearly intended to be discriminatory um, and apply them as if, you know, there was some big problem with voter fraud that they need to address, knowing full well that's not what's going on here. Yeah. You know, what they're really doing is addressing the fact that, you know, they don't want uh, minorities or young people or whoever it is they're going after to, to vote. Right. But again, Republicans have never really endorsed the view that, oh, it's just a good thing to try to limit the electorate. Because again, they're, you know, ultimately their legitimacy comes from those elections. Um, and if what we end up with is a system where everybody thinks the, you know, the elections are rigged and there's no point in participating, that's going to hurt all these existing elected officials. Um, and that's why, again, it just seems very odd to me that they wouldn't recognize their broader interest in this. Right. This is much more dangerous than those examples from the past because this questions just the whole system. Yes. Hmm. We've operated or at least I've operated with this sort of going understanding that if more people turn out to vote, they're going to be Democratic voters. Are we now questioning that? <laughs> uh, uh, yes, that's kind of been one of the things that's, you know, sort of been a truism of American politics for a long time, right, is that if we have high turnout, that generally favors Democratic politicians, because what it usually means is particularly young voters, right, who, you know, have a history of just not turning out and that, you know, tend to be the group that's least likely to turn out. Um, and it also means oftentimes uh, people who are lower down on the economic scale, um, who tend to be not as consistent voters, uh, people with lower levels of education. And again, those are usually groups that are going to support uh, Democratic candidates. And so usually it has been true that, again, higher turnout tends to generally support Democrats, not across the board, clearly, but speaking as a truism, right, it, it's, it's yeah. broadly true. But again, what we saw in this case, right, is that, you know, this kind of unusual pattern, right, where Trump, for example, um, in 2016 and in 2020, right, did better with groups of people with, say, lower education, uh, and Democrats did better with higher education. Now that's not entirely unexpected, um, but again, it, you know, the margins there are, are pretty sizable. And what the Trump people did, which was really interesting, right, is they really did generate a lot of turnout. And that turnout helped a lot of Republicans, um, but it ultimately didn't keep them the presidency. And so it's, <laughs> for that reason, 2020 is an interesting election, I think. Does that suggest a lot more split ticket voting in 2020 with people voting for Republicans down ballot, but not Trump? That's my guess as to what happened is, again, I think, you know, many Republicans simply came out and voted for Republicans from Trump on down. Um, that's by far the most common pattern. 
But I do think that there were key groups um, of people, and particularly, for example, educated Republican women. I think that's a group that didn't support Trump as strongly this time around as they had done, say, in 2016. Um, and as a result of that, I think that really was the kind of difference in this very closely contested election. Um, that I think so, there were. Go ahead. Uh, how can this is going to sound biased? Um, how can you be an educated Republican woman? <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, suppose you you think abortion is murder. Yep. I mean, there there is one issue right there. For any woman who's paying attention to what's going on in the world and to look at the way Trump behaves towards women, I, I just have so much trouble understanding how they can support him. Uh, well, I have to say, I mean, in, in 2016, uh, like everybody else, right, when we had the Access Hollywood tapes come out, yeah. I, I mean, I just assumed that was the death knell. I didn't think, oh, yeah. any, you know, I mean, again, particularly running against a woman in 2016, I assumed there weren't going to be any women voting for Donald Trump, right? It's just, uh, you know, except that, you know, a, a very few hardcore Republicans, but I just didn't see how he could do well with that group at all. And yet he did. And, you know, it was, it was that to me was, absolutely shocking. I mean, again, overall, what was shocking to me was that Republicans turned out for Trump in 2016 uh, in, in the 90% plus range, right? So people who are Republicans, 90 to 95% of them voted for Donald Trump. That's where I really thought there was going to be a weakness. I didn't think strong partisans were in fact going to vote for Donald Trump because they would recognize this guy's going to be very bad for our political party. And yet, um, I was completely wrong about that. They, they voted for him. And by and large, in 2020, we see the same thing. But again, with this kind of minor weakening in, in some areas, right, that, again, Trump did not do as well among uh, women, uh, um, although, again, he still did reasonably well there among white women in particular, um, but didn't do as well with women. Uh, and the odd thing was, I would have thought that would have been the case in 2016, running against Hillary Clinton, and yet, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton did not generate those numbers the way Joe Biden did, oddly enough. So, yeah, I know you're right, Nick, about how important the abortion thing is. Um, you know, I heard some folks on the radio who sounded really well informed. They paid close attention to the news. This was like three men, actually. Um, they were being interviewed because they were swing voters and they understood everything dislikable about Trump and were able to articulate that. And then they would say, but I'm anti-abortion, so I'm voting for him. I, what else are the other social issues that would really move the needle? I mean, or, or is it social issues or is it uh, just a, Team loyalty. Sorry, that's a pretty broad, open-ended question. But <laughs> no, well, I, think, yeah. I think that gets to indeed the key issue, um, and that is, you know, my own view of this is that issues tend to matter a lot less. Again, I think, for example, people who say, "Okay, I, I'm I'm anti-abortion. I'm voting for Donald Trump. I will not vote for a Democrat." I mean, the problem with that logic to me always is. Um, while it is true that you know, if you look at these two political parties and you look at their platforms, there's clearly a difference on these issues, most Americans don't know that, right? And, and in fact, 
you know, the, the, the nature of abortion policy in the states is, as you all are well aware, right, is, is largely one of a lot of kind of symbolic maneuvering, but not a whole lot of substantive change. Right, so we have Republican legislatures passing these, you know, really draconian bills, knowing full well that it's never going to survive, but they want to say, I voted for this, you know, terrible bill. And, you know, Democrats doing the other thing on the other side of, of trying to, to figure out ways to kind of make their position clear, even knowing that, again, in substantive policy terms, right, we're not going to end up with huge differences here. Now, again, symbolically, this is a really important issue, and it's an important issue to lots of people. But in substantive terms, right, given the way the Supreme Court has kind of structured that, we're just not going to see huge differences. And, you know, you can point to lots of Republicans who have been in office for a very long time, and yet they haven't changed policy on these issues very much. And similarly, again, with Democrats, uh, you know, who have been in office a very long time, policy doesn't change all that much. But is that true? Because it's much harder in some southern states to get an abortion now. There's fewer clinics. They've, you know, of all those hospital admitting bills, they've managed to uh, drive a lot of clinics out. Right. It is true that, uh, you know, at the margins, right, They there has been some impact on that. Right. Um, but, uh, for example... Right, it, when you're voting for president, right? Yeah. Again, president doesn't really have anything to do with Alabama abortion laws, well, uh, or anything else, right? But symbolically, right, it matters. I mean, they can, you know, they can still hope to appoint justices uh, who will, which he did. Yeah. Right. Right. And again, that was something that worked undoubtedly to Trump's advantage in 2016, um, because again, he was a guy who. You know, nobody was really convinced he was conservative at all, and yet he endorsed this position of, you know, again, in the kind of true Trump fashion of not having a reasoned position about it, but simply saying, okay, if you want these kinds of judges, these are the kind of judges I'll appoint, right? I don't care. Um, and, you know, that that's kind of, in a way, <laughs> what, what helped him a lot, because for a number of voters, that's indeed exactly what they wanted. I do agree. Uh, with the idea that largely voters don't care that much about policy. But uh, let me get back to my question. So is, is what else besides abortion are hot button social issues that may drive Republican votes? Uh, again, another one, you know, very obvious one is immigration. Right. And, and but but immigration is you know, is oddly enough a really tough issue for Republicans um, because, again, what you tend to have is a group of very diehard anti-immigrant people who, again, this was this was what Trump kind of picked up on in 2016 and used that issue to their advantage, right, of essentially saying all immigrants are bad, you know, we don't want them, we don't have enough jobs here as it is, you know, they should just stay stay out of our country. Right. And then of course, you know, a big substantial part of Republican party and Republican funding comes from businesses who in all honesty want immigrants. Right, right. Particularly want skilled immigrants, but they want all kinds of immigrants because again, that tends to lead to lower labor costs for them. Um, and so, you know, for Republicans, it's always, you know, this is a, it's a bit of a difficult issue. And it's why, for example, with, you know, George Bush, he said, okay, we're going to fix this issue for once, once and for all. 
you know, didn't happen. Um, Trump goes off in a different direction. Republicans sort of follow along there, but not that many people other than the ones who are kind of afraid of Trump as an elected official, right, really kind of bought into his position there. And much, and a lot of these, this anti-immigrant sentiment comes out of this larger feeling of dissatisfaction with one's lot, essentially, right? I mean, it, it seems to me everything comes down to whether you're Republican or Democrat, that we are dissatisfied with, with the inequality going on in this country. I don't think that's true. Uh, I, I'm per, but Matt, I, you, you answer that, and then I'll <laughs> say why I don't think well, that's true. Well, okay, well, can I just expand on it a little bit? I mean, we see, yeah. we see wealth coming into this country, and most of us don't get to have any of it. It's all going towards these few people who are getting richer and richer. And everybody's resentful on both sides. We just have different ways of handling it. So liberals think they know how to fix everything by raising taxes and talking about identity politics. And conservatives resent us trying to meddle and equate their problems with the problems of like, you know, inner city folks who are who are struggling for different reasons. Um, and so they and they blame their bad lot on people who are taking away their you know, what they perceive as taking away their manufacturing jobs. Right. And I, I think that the, the difficulty here always is that what gets translated into a political campaign, what candidates say, what kind of policy positions they take is always a long way from the kind of nuance and subtlety of, <laughs> of uh, immigration policy and, and economics and taxes and what would help and what wouldn't, right? So in that way, it's, it's, a, it's a fairly uh, crude process. I think we have to just recognize that. But I, uh, again, I think the point that Amy made, right, is that um, one of the reasons why that immigration issue became an issue that Trump could use was indeed, I think, because of dissatisfaction. It was dissatisfaction with the political system. It was dissatisfaction with the economic system, in the sense that politicians are not representing me, they're not doing what I want. Um, and the economic system in the sense that, yes, a small group of people here seem to be getting wealthier and wealthier. They seem to be doing fine, but everybody I know seems to be worse off. It's easy and you know, it's a long running theme in American politics to then blame the outsider, right? And, and to say, oh, it's, it's immigrants, it's people coming from Mexico, it's people coming from Central America, that's the problem here. Because again, that's, that's, they're sort of an easy target and it's kind of relatively easy to, to, to make that claim and you know, it's somewhat plausible. And yet again, if we think about why manufacturing jobs are going away, it's rarely because immigrants have come in and taken them away from us. It's largely because they've been lost because of either move to automation, which is a far more important part of what's going on there, or again, just the changing economics in the sense that, yes, it is a whole lot cheaper to produce things in, in Mexico or China, um, where we pay people a whole lot less than it is in the United States. Um, and so, you know, that isn't a really an issue of, of immigration, but it often gets kind of wound up and, and treated in that way. My reading about Trump's victory 
in 2006 is that it was not about economics, really, but all about race and white identity. It was backlash to Obama. I don't think that is in opposition to what I said. I think that's part of what I said. Race is just another thing to blame. Uh, So I, you know, found uh, a lot of the data that John Sides, the political scientist at the uh, Washington Post produced, uh, very convincing. One of the interesting things he showed was that for every president until Obama, that as the approval rating went up, as uh, consumer satisfaction went up, as people felt better about their lot, but somehow they got de- they got detached. Um, the president, people always feel like they're doing better economically when their president is in power. So Democrats feel like felt like they were doing better in their economically in the Obama years, uh, Republicans in the Bush years. But that disparity seemed to grow much greater in the later Obama years. Yes. Yeah. Um, And this is something that um, I think is um, an important point to recognize in terms of the nature of partisanship and again, something like (laughs) views of the economy because you're exactly right that people will switch their position in terms of how the economy is doing over a fairly short period of time if, for example, we change who's in office, which is just, which seems like an odd thing. Um, And, you know, again, the classic example of, you know, Republicans saying things are fine, and then Obama gets elected, now the economy's terrible. you know, the economy really hasn't changed all that much in a, yeah. in a sense. And and again, you know, Democrats are doing the same thing on the other side. So, I mean, one of the interesting things that I have seen there, and I think the data is kind of, you know, modestly convincing, well, not entirely, but um, is that part of this has to do with kind of the nature of trust. And the big thing that has changed there really is that, well, trust in government in general has declined, kind of more important story is that trust has also become tied up with partisanship. In other words, I trust government when my side's in office. I don't trust government when the other side's in office. Um, And that makes partisanship then even more fundamental in that way. Um, Because again, what we tend to see is that while Ordinarily, Democrats are a little bit more trusting of government and Republicans a little less trusting of government, right? Uh, Again, a lot of that will shift depending upon the nature of partisanship, right? So if there's a Republican in charge, Republicans are a little more trusting. um, And if there's a Democrat in charge, Democrats are a little more trusting. But the bigger problem, of course, is that on the other side, right, there's a sense that we don't trust government when somebody else is in charge of it. Um, And again, usually that's somebody else we're talking about here is the president rather than Congress, even recognizing, of course, that, you know, in order to really get anything done, you need, you know, majorities in in the House, the Senate and the president in order to to get something done. But still, we tend to think of it primarily in terms of the presidency. 
Let me add, I don't think I quite made the case uh, well a minute ago about the extent to which partisanship has driven by race. For example, John Sides presents data that show that if for years there was no partisan difference in how you felt about interracial dating, but all of a sudden during the Obama years, um, if you were against interracial dating, you were a white person who had left the Democratic Party mm. and how Obama really just seemed to activate that kind of, uh, of racialized partisanship. I think a lot of why Trump won was a backlash against Obama for many reasons, including being black. But I also think he didn't solve the inequality problem. If he had... Yeah. They would have loved him, but they're they're looking for something different, and they're they're blaming based on a kind of ignorance or or not being exposed to people unlike themselves. We blame other. So but, bigotry bigotry was just part part of the. But I don't think there's an inequality problem. It's like yeah, there are people who work hard and they get rich because they deserve it, and there's as long as there's there's opportunity, it's great, and it doesn't matter if. You know, if uh, 1% controls an increasing share of the income, I don't know if there is an inequality problem for a lot of uh, Republicans. Uh. Matt, what do you think? Well, the question here is, there's no doubt kind of substantively there's an inequality problem, right? right? In, in the sense that if we look at the nature of how the US economy has progressed over time, Right. It's, it's clear that people at the top end of that spectrum are doing much better. The issue I think you're getting to is, do people see that as a good thing or a bad thing? Right. right. Um, and that, again, my sense is one of the reasons why it was Trump as opposed to some other person, because again, I mean, Trump in many ways in 2016 was just a really odd candidate, right? Because this was a, you know, the Republican Party for whatever else it did or didn't do, had become ideologically dedicated to the notion of being conservative. Right. And that, you know, as we saw, I mean, in 2012 with Mitt Romney, he had to spend all of his time trying to convince people that he was conservative enough to be the candidate for the Republican Party. Right. And Trump comes along, he's has no track record at all of being a conservative. And he's running against people like Senator Ted Cruz, who, for whatever you know else is good or bad about him, is clearly a conservative, uh, and other people who fall into that category. Uh, and yet Trump beats them handily among an electorate that says our major goal is electing you know conservatives. So why elect Trump, right? Why, why pick him as your nominee? It makes no sense at all. But again, I think one of the reasons was this sense of dissatisfaction, this sense of, you know, I'm fundamentally unhappy with both the politicians who have been telling me these things over the years, but also, again, kind of with the nature of the economy in the sense of going back to what we were talking about, right, of the lack of manufacturing jobs, the sense of a lack of opportunity. I mean, I think that really was one of the elements that played into that. Um, now, your point about the centrality of race also matters because, of course, it's absolutely true that 
you know, race has been a central feature of American politics and American electoral politics for a very long time. Uh, and, you know, what Obama did in many ways, you know, help Democrats encourage people who were not white to be a part of that democratic coalition. Um, but it also meant that lots of people with a kind of unhappiness about their circumstance saw that as, oh, that means, you know, I should be a Republican because I'm white. Right? So they kind of made that set of connections, even though I don't think anybody was explicitly doing that. You know, and Trump kind of came closest to that with his immigration talk. Right. But again, I mean, Trump also was in 2016 promoting these, for lack of a better term, sort of idiotic economic theories that, you know, somehow if we could just get better trade deals, right, all our problems right. would solved. It's like, okay. And, and again, from a political party that has been free trade for most of the 20th century, and Trump comes along and basically just says, oh, no, that's not me. So again, it makes no sense as the Republican nominee, and yet he gets the nomination. Again, I have to think that was a lot of unhappy Republican voters yeah. who were, were not satisfied with the way things were going. In particular, but with the, you know, they didn't want entitlements to be cut. They didn't want uh, Social Security to be privatized and Medicare to be voucherized as mainstream Republicans have been talking about for years. I think that's true. It wasn't a big feature of what Trump talked about in 2016, but he did very clearly say, Right, we're not going to do anything with Social Security. We're we're going to we're going to protect uh, Medicare um, because you know I realize these are important programs. And again, no Republican ever came out and said those kinds of things. Um, most Republicans recognize that they don't say that, but you know Trump very explicitly said that. And again, I think that goes to your point in the in that the people that he's talking to sort of recognize that yeah, those those things are helping me. So you know, keep your hands off of that. Um, but let's, you know, let's focus on these immigrants. Let's focus on China. Let's focus on something else out there that's the problem. It, it sounded, Nick, like you had maybe a different picture of a Republican than I did. Like you're picturing someone who like works hard and makes a lot of money and wants to keep his money. And I'm picturing someone who lost his manufacturing job and is now living, you know, hillbilly elegy style in a <laughs> drug ravaged Ohio town, you know? <laughs> so those are people who are keenly aware of inequality. But Trump voters in general had higher, you know, the higher your income, the more likely you were to be a Trump voter. So mm. it was, and they're, you know, older. And so they, you know, they see the loss of manufacturing jobs and they see all that around them. But if you're poor, you're more likely to be a Democrat voter, at least at the is bottom that, of the scale. Is that still true? It is. And again, it's something that has been true for a long time. And it's a real bit of a puzzle here because indeed Trump was doing well with people who were uh, white kind of working class voters in places like Ohio and Pennsylvania. Right. I mean, that's that's what got him the election in, in 2016. Um, and yet, right, if you look more broadly, generally people with lower incomes are much more likely to vote Democrat. People with higher incomes are much more likely to vote Republican. The one exception to that is that indeed with high income people, the people sort of above the, say, $120,000 a year mark, uh, a certain number of them are more likely to be Democrats. But again, it's not a very large proportion of people. Well, I wonder if we're starting to see that change. 
we now have a lot of rich people in tech, rich liberal people who own like the Washington Post and that sort of thing, and a lot of working class people joining the Republican Party. I don't know if it's we can call them working class because they don't have college educations, but they're higher income. Oh, maybe I'm using wrong terminology. Well, you know, over time, yeah, what the Republican and Democratic Party stood for has sort of kind of wandered around. So maybe it's wandering. Maybe that's one of the explanations for why Trump did so well in this election. Yes, I mean it, it's absolutely the case, right? That uh, with very few exceptions, right? Uh, social groups do tend to be affiliated with one political party or the other, but um, those change over time, right? And that's and, and it's usually those, those kind of dramatic changes that lead to the real differences in how uh, political parties do. Again, if you look at the Republican Party, for example, right? I mean, the Republican Party largely became the party of uh, whites uh, in the 1960s. Um, and so that's something that um, had a big impact both on Republican voters, but also on Democratic voters. And again, it's, it's taken a very long time. It's still true, however, that again, in general with income, right, people on the lower end tend to be Democrats and people on the higher end tend to be Republicans. Not absolutely true, uh, there, there are poor people who vote for Republicans and there are rich people who vote for Democrats. But again, kind of in, in the broader sense of what those results look like, right? generally speaking, kind of people lower down on the economic scale are going to vote for Democrats. People higher up in the economic scale are going to vote for Republicans. One question I have after seeing the exit polls was Trump's gains among non-white voters. What do you make of that? I mean, the exit polls may be garbage, right. but... Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a very good question. I mean, the question about the exit polls is out there. We'll just have to kind of wait and see how that sorts out. But again, some of it was quite understandable. So for example, uh, Trump doing well with, um, say, Latino voters in Florida Right, that really was largely a function of the fact that uh, he was appealing to very particular groups of people, right? Particularly Cubans in in southern Florida, uh, Venezuelans, um, and really kind of you know making this argument about Democrats being socialist. Right, um, and 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 again, it's something that that worked for him, but again, it really works only with a, a fairly limited group. If you look, for example, at Latino voters who are Mexican American. Right. There again, Democrats tended to do much better, um, but we do see some gender differences there, right? In the sense that Latinas, women, uh, tended to be more supportive of Biden. Um, Latino men tended to be uh, a little more supportive of Trump. Overwhelmingly, Biden won Latino voters who were who you know, outside of, for example, Cuban Americans. Um, but what we have seen there is. Trump did better this time in 2020 than he did in 2016 with uh, Latino voters in particular, and to a smaller extent with black voters. Again, that's based on the exit polls. So want to be a little bit careful with that. And again, not, you know, not as if Trump uh, got a huge number of votes from, from any African-Americans, right? That's a group that's you know, overwhelmingly Democratic and voted that way in 2020. 
Huh. I understand the appeals to the Cuban and Venezuelans, Latinos in Florida, but whether did Trump also gain among other Latinos, especially the men? And if so, why? It, yeah, I mean, I think I think what we see there again, it's still kind of overwhelmingly Democratic group, um, but where Trump did reasonably well. Not, for example, as well as, say, George Bush did, George W. Bush did in, in 2004 with Latino voters, um, which was kind of the high mark for Republicans in terms of winning that particular demographic. Again, that's a demographic that's grown since that time. So um, they're you know, well worth noting that. But again, what we saw is that, again, among Latino men, there was some evidence of stronger support for Trump and a lot of that had to do with, with their take on the economy, right? That they saw Trump as somebody who had performed well on the economy prior to the pandemic, and they thought would continue to perform well in the economy if reelected. Um, and so I think with that group, there was very clearly a kind of economic appeal to Trump. Um, whether or not they endorsed his other views is not so clear. Um, but it, it does show the weakness of the democratic presumption of saying, oh, no Latinos are ever going to vote for Donald Trump because of his awful talk on immigration. Right. Uh, you know, like other voters, right, this is a group that there are lots of things going on and there are, there are lots of reasons that may motivate them to vote or not vote or how they vote. Was the, was the amount of Latino and African-American vote that surprised us that went Republican that went for Donald Trump was that enough to because of the electoral college was that enough to push push those states to go red, or, or did we just notice at the exit polls that oh there's an increase in in this group of people, or was it really significant? Right. I mean, this is mostly based upon the exit polls, and again, the the nice thing about exit polls is they tend to be a very large sample. So we can, you know, look at some distinctions among groups like, you know, black men and, and black women and Latino women and Latino men, which again, in an ordinary opinion poll, you're going to have a hard time doing much with that because the numbers very quickly get small. Um, but with exit polls, you tend to have enough people, you can do more with that. But um, it's also the case, and I think to the point that you're making is, there's no real evidence that any of those shifts in any of those groups led to Trump or Biden do, you know, doing well or not doing well in a particular state, with the exception, I think, of Florida. Maybe Florida, yeah. Right, which is the one case where, again, I think you know, this kind of overwhelmingly Democratic Southern Florida counties um, weren't as overwhelmingly democratic and that helped uh, you know, Trump carry Florida. Um, but at least as far as I've seen anyway, I haven't seen any evidence that it mattered in, in other places in terms of Ohio or Pennsylvania or any other state. Let me ask you about the Twitter conclusion that Democrats were hurt essentially by being too woke, by calling Latinos, referring to them as Latinx, even though no Latinos use the term, that this kind of uh, issue that the Ibrahim uh, Kendi, Robin D'Angelo kind of anti-racism was damaging to Democrats' electoral prospects. I think that's exaggerated, but I'm wondering if you, you think that 
any of that made any difference? I think it's unlikely it made any difference. Um, again, this is largely a debate that goes on among, among people who are pretty well-educated and well-informed, but they're talking to a pretty small number of yes. people. <laughs> um, so, I, I mean, I think in terms of voters, you know, this sort of weird argument, which I, yes. you know, I always have a hard time with is, you know, when you say, oh, the Democrats are really socialist, uh, you know, I'm always kind of like, oh, no, not, not this again. But, I, you know, for at a certain level, right, that that does kind of have an impact on people. Because, again, for a very long time in American politics, right, socialist is meant bad. Right. If you're not quite sure what it is, right, you know, it's bad. Um, and the example of, you know, from political tolerance in the 1950s, right, pick a group you really don't like, well, we'll pick socialists. Right. Socialists and communists, those are two groups we really don't like, right? Uh, because uniformly that was true, right? Um, and so while that has changed over time, uh, we, know, we no longer measure political tolerance in that way, but it is also the case that, um, you know, again, for lots of Americans, the notion of being called socialist is, is a bad thing. Uh, and, you know, Bernie Sanders can try as he might to say, well, that's not really what it means and, you know, sorts of things. But again, for lots of voters, that's just a very kind of knee-jerk sense that, it, yeah, socialist is bad. I, I was going to switch topics, Nick, unless you have more on this one. No, no, no. I'm good. Go for it. Well, I just was curious. Um, Nick was saying that you're often asked by local uh, Utah television to talk about politics. Is there something it's, uh, specifically that they ask you to talk about? Is it local politics? Uh, I do all kinds of <laughs> kinds of things. Sometimes it's national politics. Often it's local politics, not surprisingly, because uh, media in Utah want to talk about Utah politics. Uh, and so I do a, a range of things in that regard. What's interesting in Utah politics right now? I think what was interesting in Utah politics is what we saw um, were, again, you know, for example, the governor's race that was entirely predictable, the Republican won handily. Um, the real issue that we had here was about what was going to happen in the 4th Congressional District, uh, where we had a Democrat, Ben McAdams, who ran in that district, got elected um, in 2018 for the first time. He had been a popular Salt Lake County mayor prior to that. Um, before that, he'd been in the uh, Utah legislature. Um, and he was, he was somebody who um, ran in 2018 and, and really benefited from the fact that Democrats were so energized in that election. Um, and so the question was, you know, as an incumbent, could he hang on? He got, in a way, kind of an ideal candidate to run against. That is a Republican who was conservative, but not particularly, you know, uh, polished um, and was somebody who made these arguments about, oh, Democrats are just socialists and, and they're bad and, and um, you know, very much a kind of Trump Republican. And, and it looked like McAdams, even though we knew it was going to be very competitive and very close, you know, like McAdams would be able to pull that out. But in fact, in the end, uh, McAdams lost. Um, and so, and again, that had an awful lot to do with Republican turnout. Uh, just Republicans turned out. Uh, and, and voted in the 4th Congressional District, and that kind of doomed McAdams in terms of trying to, to, to get reelected. I'm a little surprised Utah turnout was high because it seemed 
I often got the sense that Trump didn't play as well there, that LDS voters may be offended by him, that, uh, yeah, I mean, largely, largely that. Yes. And, and I think that's in, indeed the case. The interesting thing was, uh, for me anyway, is that I talked to a fair number of Republicans before the election who would say to me, I don't think I can vote for Donald Trump. I just, you know, the guy just, and, and this was this was more about, a, as you suggested, right? It was more kind of his personal sense. They weren't that unhappy with his policy views, uh, although some took issue with his, his, you know, his immigration policy. But but by and large, it was his his personal sense, right? His kind of personal conduct, the way he acted as a politician. They just didn't that did not work for them. And it's something that I would have thought in 2016, we would have seen the same thing again there. What we saw was lots of lots of Republicans kind of voting for a third party candidate. No third party candidate really filled that role in terms of the 2020 election. You know, Trump won the state. He did better here than he had in 2016. Um, but again, almost all of that was because there wasn't a kind of viable third party uh, conservative. Oh, like uh, that Evan, like Evan, Evan McMullen, McMullen, right? right. Uh, and and as a result of that, I think what you what you saw was you know Republicans I think turning out there was some weakness in terms of them not necessarily supporting Trump, but they absolutely tended to vote for Republicans farther down the ballot. Okay. How is Utah feeling about Mitt Romney these days? Is the most outspoken anti-Trump Republican senator? Um, again, I think there's a split there. Um, some folks, even within the Republican Party, really dislike Romney's view. Um, but I think overwhelmingly, Romney, I think, reflects much more the kind of view that lots of Republicans have. Um, it, there was some talk after, after Romney uh, voted to impeach Trump on one of the counts, and that that caused a lot of unhappiness among Republican activists. Um, but it very quickly got tamped down um, because there was a sense that, yeah, we're not going to take on Mitt Romney. We're, we're just not going to do that. Uh, you know that that Republicans, you know, we don't we, we don't need to have that fight. Uh, and they, they were they were fairly clear in that that's just that's just not going to be a winning strategy for us. So. Okay. Yes, I remember that some members of the state legislature made noises about censuring Mitt Romney after that. But I'm glad it uh, it never came to pass. That's right. I mean, it it they they sort of said we're going to do this, and then you know it's fairly clear that everybody thought that was. I mean, you know, other than the two or three people who said that, right? Everybody else thought that was a terrible idea, and no, we're not going to do that. So. <laughs> Do you, in your studies and in what you teach, have a particular focus or a particular aspect of political science that interests you? So um, my research is is a bit broad in, in, in many ways, um, but what I teach is um, particularly on um, uh, voting in elections, um, political parties, uh, I also do uh, research methods uh, like like Nick does um, and um, research design, those sorts of things. Um, but most of my undergraduate courses are courses in uh, voting in elections uh, and political parties. Is there 
a particular thing that you're researching now or big questions that that interest you the most? At the moment, what I'm working on is actually a uh, is a book on um, opposition to the Olympics in American cities, um, oh. which has been a topic I've written on for quite a while. Um, and the reason that I think there's something interesting to say here is that the nature of that opposition in re in recent years has changed, and the the examples that I'm looking at here include. Um, Chicago's bid for the 2016 election, um, Boston's bid for the 2024 election, uh, and then Los Angeles, which is now going to host the 2028 elections. You mean Olympics? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, Olympics, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I meant to say Olympics, but I was talking elections. You know, Whatever. Elections, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. Trump oh, stole our attention. That's right, that's right. Um, but what, what we've seen there is uh, we did an, I, I did an article with, with two colleagues uh, a number of years ago looking at um, some other Olympic cities. And one of the conclusions about the opposition was that it tended to be the term we used here was piecemeal. That is, there was no kind of broader sense of opposing the Olympics or opposing the Olympic growth model or opposing how the Olympics affected cities. It was really all about just um, not having uh, the Olympics in my backyard, right? I don't, I, I don't want a ski jump in my backyard. Um, and so we saw some opposition based on that kind of resistance. But what we've seen in these recent elections is some tendency to kind of now question that broader model about how the Olympics impact cities, um, what it means in terms of the choices that cities make, particularly around policy, and often motivated by people who are advocates for housing, for people who you know, are, are homeless, for people who uh, want to advocate for more social services. Um, and so it, there's, there's been this change in the nature of Olympic opposition. So for us, that, that's kind of interesting. When did the change start? Well, at least in as far as we can tell, this really sort of started with Chicago in 2016 and again, I'm saying 2016 election, so it was really, you know, kind of the uh, 2007, there six, seven, eight, nine period of time in which the opposition was going in, in Chicago. Um, and what you saw there was people from Chicago, for example, inviting people from Vancouver to come in uh, and talk about how the preparations for the Olympics were going in their city uh, and trying to link this to a broader sense that the Olympics are problematic as opposed to what we had seen before, which was really very localized and very much just about, you know, where venues would be or things like that. Um, there was, at least in Chicago, uh, there was a broader sense that, yeah, we needed to raise this question about, you know, what do the Olympics mean in terms of the impact they have on cities? What is the impact? <laughs> I've long sort of been an Olympic skeptic, but. Uh... Yeah, I mean, I have to put myself in that camp as well. I mean, generally what we see is that the economic effect of the Olympics is really very small, even with construction and all the other kinds of things. Um, you know, the, the Olympics are a very, very small part of any cities or certainly any state's economy. Um, so there's not a big economic payoff to hosting the Olympic games. Is, and is, all that the, is that because it kind of balances itself out ultimately? 
<laughs> so much goes into it that not really enough has gotten out of it. Yeah, I think I think there there are really two things. One is that it's just a very small proportion of the economy, even in a even in a state like Utah. Um, when we held the games in two thousand one, the effect was just really not all that large. And so, the other part of that is um, that there's this kind of substitution effect, right? Yeah. So that there's always this sense that, oh, when you hold the Olympics, you're going to get all these tourists. And you do get tourists during the Olympics, but you also lose a lot of tourists because regular conventions don't show up and hold their convention. Oh, that's interesting. You know you're holding the game, so mm. you know. So it's, it really is. It's sort of a mixed bag in that sense. What do you think is going on right now with Trump firing people? What's he trying to prove? <laughs> I don't think there is any political strategy to this at all. I think it is nothing more than just the nature of how Trump has always conducted himself. Um, again, I, I think, you know, fundamentally he is a petty and vindictive person. Uh, and I think that's what's going on, right? Is that he just wants to say, you crossed me, I'm going to fire you. Um, and, you know, that again, that's okay if you're running your own business. It doesn't really make sense if you're the president of the United States. There's been a lot of speculation about what's going to happen once he does actually leave office and what, whether he's going to remain in politics somehow or go into media or just make it difficult for everybody who is in politics. Do you have any theories about what's going to happen to him? I mean, there's also all the legal battles he's up against. Right. Um, what's going to happen to him and what's going to happen to his followers? Where are they going to go? That's a, that's a very interesting question. My take on this uh, and I may be a little unusual in this regard, but my take is I don't think there is a chance in the world that Donald Trump is going to continue to be uh, a high-level political figure in the United States. Um, and again, I say this with some reservation because, again, I didn't think he was ever going to get the Republican nomination. I didn't think he could get elected president. So he's already proved me wrong in, in many ways. But I, I, I simply think, I mean, if you look at the kind of people you know, going back to Howard Dean and looking at a variety of other uh, uh, politicians who have said, I've got a movement here, I'm going to be able to, you know, make this work. That almost never plays out. Um, Donald Trump, although he got himself elected in 2016, I think completely lacks the discipline to do those sorts of things. Um, Bernie Sanders tried a little bit, um, but again, didn't do a whole lot with it. Uh, and, you know, Donald Trump, doesn't have the focus or the discipline that a Bernie Sanders does, and Bernie Sanders couldn't do it. So I just don't, I mean, the only reason that Trump would play that role at all is because he likes to stand up in front of an audience and have them cheer him. That seems to suggest that he will be able to sustain a movement because I would assume one of the things he does when he leaves office is he just continues to do MAGA rallies, but he charges because he needs the he needs the money. Yeah, and I and I again, I to me, I just I can't see that happening. I, I can't see people paying for that. <laughs> one one thing to go when you think you're supporting a presidential candidate, if you're paying, I'm guessing you know, people will say, yeah, I've seen this show plenty of times. I don't need to see it again. And I don't need to pay, you know, 
$59.99 in order to get in. So. so when Republican administration comes back around, as it probably will, um, is it going to be a Trumpy kind of Republican Party, or is it going to be the other kind, the more bushy, you know, let's welcome immigrants and be fiscally conservative kind of Republican Party? That is a really good question. I mean, I I think it's very interesting to know kind of what the lasting effect of Trump will be on the Republican Party, um, because uh, again, my my kind of first reaction to that is now that he's lost, once he actually does leave office, uh, I can imagine a fair number of Republican operatives saying, okay, we need to purge ourselves of this kind of Trump view as quickly as possible and get back to being conservative and using that as our focal point. But again, I think the unhappiness that Trump tapped into in 2016 has not entirely gone away. Uh, so it's not clear that Republicans can just go back and win in the way that they could before by claiming to be the most conservative. Um, and so I, you know, I, I think that's a, that is very much an open question. I don't see any Donald Trump juniors not going anywhere politically. I don't think even Ivanka Trump is going to go anywhere politically. I don't see anybody else picking up Donald Trump's mantle and, and carrying it forward. But I do think the question is, do Republicans, for example, change their view on free trade in order to try to maintain some of that base of support that, that Trump generated? I'm terrified of Josh Hawley. Yeah. I, I think it's going to go, I think it's going to be Marco Rubio. Hmm. I have just made my prediction publicly. <laughs> <laughs> but he totally flopped in, I guess, the last two, two elections. He flopped, and he seems to just represent the old sort of Bush, uh, you know, cut taxes for rich people form of Republicanism, whereas Josh Hawley... Well, yeah, I'm predicting that's what's going to... Come, that's that's what the Republican Party is going to become, and he's young and very well spoken. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Marco Rubio, uh, I think is is the kind of politician that you would expect Republican operatives to look at and say, "Yes, this is what we need." Yeah. Right? We need a guy who is not threatening to to whites, and yet should have some appeal uh, to, to people who are not white. Um, that's the kind of thing we need to promote. Uh, um, but again, you know, I mean, Josh Hall is pretty much just the Trump mode, right? That, that his entire- he's More polished. He is more polished, that's true. I mean, he's, he's, not, he's not quite as uh, clownish, for lack of a better term, uh, as Trump is. Um, but again, in, you know, in substantive terms, he's very much in the in the Trump mode. A lot obviously depends on what Biden is able to do. Yes, you, you know, because we'll have to see what what the level of dissatisfaction is after four years of Biden. Uh, yes, I, I think that's exactly right. And again, it it's you know the real difficulty for Democrats, of course, is that they did so poorly, other than in the presidential election. Um, that 
you know, they've got a reduced majority in the House. Uh, they're, you know, they might get the Senate, but unlikely. Um, so, I, I, you know, again, it's going to be very tough for, for Biden to get anything substantive done. Mm. What do you think is going to happen in Georgia? My guess is Republicans win both of those seats. Uh, and the reason is simply because, again, if you're you're talking about, you know, essentially a December election um, and you're talking about motivating people to turn out and vote, this is where the traditional Republicans are going to have a huge advantage because they're likely to turn out and vote. And all the Democrats who, you know, managed to win Georgia for, for Joe Biden uh, are, are not likely to turn out and vote in, in that special election. Mm. I tried, I've already, we already, for the presidential election, sent a bunch of letters to Georgia and we'll send more. And I've given money to both Warnick and Ossoff. Uh, but yeah, I I have to agree with you guys. I think it's- Yeah, it's, no, no, it's a good point. I, think, I don't think there's gonna be an, as much passion on both sides to turn out for that election, yeah. Very hard thing to do, it really is. Yep. Do you think there's something to the theory that Republicans are indulging Trump in his fantasies just to um, keep the magic MAGA base uh, excited uh, before those elections? I, I think that I think that to me is a more reasonable explanation as to why Republicans are doing what they're doing, um, because I think there is at least some fear that if they say, no, you lost, you know, let's, let's get on to Biden. We're not happy, but we need to do this. Um, and again, I think there's some risk at least that Trump says, well, you know, then people shouldn't turn out and vote for Republicans because they're, they're, you know, treating me badly. Um, and of course, you know, in the, in the Senate elections that could matter. Wow. Well, let's talk again in four years. <laughs> <laughs> and things will all be different then. So yeah. 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 <laughs> we'll be living in bubble houses on the moon. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Matt. I appreciate your Yeah, time. endlessly oh, fascinating. We could go on, but we yeah. we need to we need to not go on. Yes. So, great conversation. And you bet. Happy to do it. I thanks so much. You bet. Okay, bye bye. I'm stopping you. recording now. Boom. Okay. Uh, we are done. Amy, I apologize if I was too contentious. Oh, no, no. Okay. I didn't think you were contentious. I, no, that was interesting, actually. Good. Um, I, you know, I think it's fine when we disagree. <laughs> <laughs> it is politics after all, right? Right. And ultimately, I think my point was that we weren't really disagreeing. I mean, I totally yeah. agree with you that race is important. I just yeah. think race is kind of a subset of a larger thing. But I, I don't know. I guess the, I guess race is a thing on its own, right? People yeah. really are bigoted because they're bigoted. They're not bigoted necessarily because they're just looking for somebody to blame. I, I mean, I don't know. It's, it, I, 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 think, I think it's very complex in that sense because, I, I mean, I do think that people are, in fact, um, it, in some cases, absolutely just bigoted. But I also think that it's true that, again, for, for lots of folks, right, yeah, race is, is caught up with all kinds of other things, including, you know, the economy and immigration and all kinds of other things. And, you know, trying to sort out what's what is not an easy thing. So, 
And I also think education has a huge amount to do with this. If you're if if you grew up with a bunch of people around you who are are bigoted, uh, and you know you're just sort of stuck with all these vestiges from an older time when people were were much more separated, and there were all these conjectures we made about each other just based on like really old school thought, and and you're not getting uh, a worldly kind of education where you get to be around other people different from you, you're, that's what creates bigotry, um, right? And so, and so again, dissatisfaction, not having enough resources in your little town to get, to get a good education or not being able to go to college and not being able to travel and see the bigger world, you know, that's, that'll make you a bigoted person. Uh, is it always, is it even bigotry, is bigotry the same as white identification as, White salience of yourself as a white person? No. I mean, not in just a objective sense. It's not. I mean, I can say I'm a white person, and I'm, but I, and I can also say I'm not a bigoted person. Yeah. So I'm wondering, you know, thinking what was driving Trumpiness is not always just bigotry, but just greater sense of oneself as white, greater... Okay, but if you're sensing your, yourself as white and there's something good about that and you need to stick together as white people, that's bigotry. Is it? Yeah. I don't know. I just wonder if there's a you know, if there's some parsing to do there, but um, I'm not. Uh, uh, yeah, well, it's an interesting question. Yeah. All right. Sorry, Matthew. Did we lose yeah. Matthew? No, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, we didn't mean to keep you this long, but uh, <laughs> all right, I will. I will. You know, uh, we're not trying to get rid of you either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stay as long as you like. <laughs> I, I, I'm actually leaving now, so I'm gonna I'm gonna hit home. So all right, all right. Thank okay. you so much for staying. Stick yeah, out. thanks again. You right. bet. Bye bye. Bye. Okay, so back to your question. Identifying as a white person, like if I check the box white on the box checky thing, yeah. That's who I am. That's what I am. There's there's no emotional content to that. But if I'm worried about the white race dying out and I want to keep other people from in, infiltrating yeah. it, obviously that's bigoted. Now, how about, okay, if you're worried about the white race dying out, yes. But suppose, you know, you say blacks are, blacks are allowed to be proud about being black. Can I be pride, proud about being white? Um, I as a Okay, but there's a whole reason why why black people need to be proud about being black is because we've been tr trampling on their pride for hundreds of years. Right. And and they should be allowed to assert assert themselves. Nobody's been trampling on my pride, so I don't need to say I'm proud to be white. I feel the same way. I totally agree with you. Right? But that's not how a lot of white, you know, a lot of whites are feeling. They feel like Yes, there was terrible racism in the past, but that's all over with. Now, you know, every few months, prestige media, you know, like the Times runs, you know, sort of fairly anti-white sounding articles, right? Is it okay to have white friends, that kind of thing? Right, reverse uh, racism. I, oh, I hate that phrase. Why is it reverse, why isn't it just racism? Oh, I, I'm, I'm, that's just, I'm just using the phrase yeah. because I hear other people using it. Yeah. I don't like it either. Yeah. Oh, good. Um, good. Okay. Well, I don't, I don't like the whole concept. Yeah. I don't either. Because I, people who, 
come from two such different histories yeah. that that they shouldn't necessarily have to take the same approach. I I, you know? I agree. I'm you know I'm you know just playing devil's advocate and what the Trump people say. Uh, yeah, I mean I'm I'm that sort of flusters me because it's like it, I don't. I don't take it personally when the Times runs that article, you know, that article, the the sort of anti-white article every few months. I, you know, wish they didn't run it, but it doesn't. You know, I don't take it personally. That some people really do. Right. I don't take it personally either, and I I look at it. I try to look at it from their perspective. I can see where you're coming from. I can see why you feel like you have to assert yourself and why you have to band together as a culture yeah. because there's power in numbers and it's great to be able to commiserate. On the other hand, it, it, it can have the effect of separating you when really what we want is to integrate. Yeah. And that, that I find sad. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Uh, you know, I thought the Trump is, you know, it's sort of too late to try to be a, all a white nation because of, uh, you know, our forebears who thought to bring, you know, Africans in bondage here to this country. And so now that's our, it's our lot to be a multiracial, you know, democracy. So we better make it work. Right. Well, I mean, they have the unique position of having been brought here against their will, but lots yeah. of other people have come willingly. Yeah. And if you consider the newness of the nation and and how many different kinds of people live here and all the different geographies and the just the sort of physical hugeness of this country. And I just, I, you know, I continue to be a little bit amazed that it kind of works. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, same here. Same here. It's, yeah, I'm a patriotic American. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of amazing. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think this country really sucks that badly. I, you know, it's sad to see what's happening to it right now, but yeah. Uh, you know, I'm always hearing like, what do other countries think of us? And they're, they're, people can see that it's a bit of an experiment that for the most part is succeeding. Thanks for listening to the professor and the idiot. If you like what you heard, go to Apple podcasts and give us a good rating. Your positive feedback completes us.